My guest for this episode is science writer and communicator Kat Arney. She is one of the UK's foremost science communicators and today we're going to discuss that process for how science finds its way out of academia and into people's lives for better or worse. Kat, hello. Hello, thank you for having me on. No, it's a pleasure. It's been a while. You've written for TES in the past and uh, we've had, you know, you've written some really, really amazing features for us, some that have been award-winning, so it's it's good to be reacquainted with you. So um, uh, I think the best place for us to start when we're talking about science and research and and its impact on the real world is when a scientist is uh, undertaking research, is it a lazy assumption to assume that every scientist wants to change the world, that they want to to have a practical impact on life? Well, I think it's a lazy assumption to assume that all scientists are the same. Mm. And it's sort of uh, the thing that I always try and get across to people is like, scientists are humans. Science, for all the talk of like, just led by the science and evidence, like science is a human practice that is done by humans. And it's inevitably and incontrovertibly linked to our humanity. So you can't say, well, scientists are like this. Scientists are like that. All scientists are like this because they're as different as any other humans are. So Mm. yeah, some are massively driven by ego. Some are massively driven by altruism. Some are somewhere in between. Some just want to get through life and just get paid and and do other things, right? (laughs) You know, like all of us, we all have our own things that motivate us. So this I think it's a a canard to say that, you know, the motivation for science is entirely altruistic and wanting to change the world. In many cases it is. And a lot of scientists I know are really driven by wanting to see impact of their work. You know, Mm. I want to find the treatment for cancer, particularly or or, or any condition, particularly if they've got a personal connection to it. Um, You know, I'm going to beat heart disease because that's what killed my granny. Uh, And others are just really driven by curiosity. And I think there's a lot of scientists and researchers that are like that they just want to understand the connections and and complexities in life and certainly for me when I was a scientist that's what I wanted to know I was a developmental geneticist and I wanted to understand how do you unfold life from one set of DNA in one cell a fertilized egg how do you build a baby from that Mm. and it turns out it's really complicated so I gave up and became a writer because that's (laughs) a lot easier but, you know, that, that, the curiosity-driven thing, like wanting to know how stuff works and, and sort of wanting knowledge, that was my driver. But for other people, they had, you know, even in the same lab, had different motivations. Some people, it was literally just a job. It was what they'd gone into and they were good at it. Um, you know, you get the sort of the people who are like, yeah, I want big papers and I want to be like famous and I you know, want to win a Nobel Prize, blah. Uh, and other people who are like, yeah, I want to set up a company and a spin out and, and develop some kind of, new therapy uh but yeah most most people you know know that science isn't going to make them massively rich so money's yeah. not a massive motivator uh but people have very different motivations as we all do do they um if they if they do have you know a curiosity like you said or if the motivation is to have a nobel prize or to spin it out are they motivated to place those experiments in as real circumstances that they can from the off because i think one of the things from education research we see a lot is that the research is done in uh laboratories a lot of the time and a lot of the time with um, undergraduate students uh not necessarily schools and you know the the variables get so isolated to find one particular thing that the reality you know they may set out to be quite a realistic scenario but the reality sort of edges out of the experiment i mean is that is that normal is that the scientific process i guess is the question 
Yeah, well, there's sort of different levels of it. So, I mean, the area that I really know about is, is biology and the life sciences, but pretty much every field of science has the whole spectrum from incredibly theoretical mm. all the way through to extremely practical and sort of applied, uh, in the case of biology, like really applied clinical and population research, going all the way right down to the, the theoretical biology, you know, doing statistical calculations on populations or trying to understand the fundamental mechanisms, the molecules within inside a cell. Mm. And physics has got the same going all the way from, you know, the maths, theoretical physics to, you know, putting a rocket up into space as a physics project. So you've yeah. got everything. So I think that all these, um, all these disciplines, it's about what different level. And science at pretty much almost all levels has to rely on some kind of model. There's a very famous story about a king who said, like, I, I want a map of my kingdom. And so his cartographers went away and they drew this, this map of the kingdom. He's like, no, no, I want more detail. I want more detail in it. Mm. And they were like, went away and they drew a bigger map with more detail. He's like, no, 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 this doesn't capture everything. I want more detail. And in the end, the only map that was really accurate was a map that was the size of the kingdom with everything on it so you know all of science all of science is basically trying to kind of control as many variables as you can to get some kind of insight Mm. i think particularly in the life sciences now uh, we're trying to move towards the idea of like real world medicine real world outcomes what actually matters to people Mm. Uh, and those are hard to measure because people don't always behave like you want them to, you know, they're not, they're not neat and, and well behaved like a laboratory mouse. But it, it's sort of accepting that every model and every system has its flaws, but being honest about what they are. And then, all right, what's the next experiment that you would do to try and figure out some more? Science is not a one and done. You know, mm. you don't have the definitive experiment that just shows you everything. It's always a step in a process towards, okay, right, well, that showed us that. Where do we go from here? Yeah, and I think the, in education, they look to health and life sciences a lot to say, look, they're, they're doing some really complex research. And there's a guy called Professor John Dunlosky in the US who wrote something for us recently and said he'd love to do more like that. But the cost and the timeframes involved in real world research, he said the money is just really not there for, the edu- for education at the moment. And if that is the case, and, you know, these guys, you know, let, let's, let's say that the, the scientist does want to make a difference the translation exercise of what is necessarily a, a, a contained experiment to find a result and the practical endpoint. How much of a responsibility does the scientists themselves have for that translation process, do you think? I mean, personally speaking, um, there's two kind of different things here. So there's the sort of the translation in how do you turn something that's, that's an idea or scientific concept or a scientific result? How do you actually develop that into a real world application? Mm. So again, in the life sciences, we talk about translational research being how do you take you know, a discovery in the lab through to being a treatment and then all the testing that you'd have to do with that. But I guess as well in the context of something like educational research, it's how do you take the results of psychological experiments and then translate that into uh, an intervention or some kind of idea or program that then you can bring out through schools Mm. and actually when I was writing for TES I did a lot of science-based features I talked to a lot of educationalists and the thing that shocked me and I kept coming back to all the time is how little and how poor quality the actual educational research is there's a lot of people writing a lot of books and having a lot of ideas based on that kind of you know the psychological literature but when 
if you apply the same rigor that we do in in the life sciences like have you actually tested this in a kind of randomized trial or, or different settings and most of the time the answer was no but it like it seems plausible or no one's got the time for doing that let's just make a nice a nice book and a nice program about it and and roll it out so i think where where i think it is really important in the language translation so how do we talk about these ideas that are coming from research talk about them to the public i really think everyone involved in science has a responsibility to do that and you know not everyone's going to be an amazing science communicator and it doesn't have to be like oh i'm gonna do a ted talk or whatever or write loads of blogs mm. it's more about just that commitment to explaining what you're doing what are the limitations of what you're doing where could this go next and like how does it work and like explaining the process behind it rather than just like we found a thing here's my big idea you know buy buy my program roll it out <laughs> yeah well we've had um both professor carol dweck and professor john hattie on the on the podcast and they almost seem surprised that something they deem to be an academic exercise and often in carol dweck's case not something that was connected to education in her mind was taken up by teachers and they went oh well now, now it's been misinterpreted. I mean, the blame was very much put on the teachers for that misinterpretation. Um, I, I guess I better do some translation work. And it seemed like an afterthought. And yet other people um, we, we've had on the podcast, people like Daniel Ansari and, and, and Jesse Ricketts do lots of research with teachers because, because they're, they're, they're worried about the impact. And I, I don't want to get into a right and wrong necessarily, but that spectrum of sort of viewpoint, is that, is that normal across research or is that something as you say that might be a little bit particular to education well i think it's you know come back to my original point like everyone's different and everyone's yeah, yeah. got their own own views and, and own and their own capacity to do this stuff because like communicating things well it really takes time and it takes skill and it takes effort and all of those things eventually equate to money as well mm. but i think um so when i spent 12 years working at cancer research uk in the science comms team and one of the jobs that I put on myself to do was to be kind of reading the comments. Everyone says like, oh, don't read the comments. Yeah. But I would read the comments under the Daily Mail posts. I would read the Facebook stuff. I would read everything, even the stuff that was um, controversial or aggressive, because to try and find out what people are saying and then to think about, all right, what are the misconceptions out there? How can we address them? Without wading in and going like, you're wrong, that's not right. Yeah. Um, but like, okay, there is a discourse here about x how can we think about in our communications that we actually sort of address x because we know it's an issue mm. so i think it is a bit of a dodge to say if you're going to put out a book or put out some research and promote it and want it to be successful for the reasons that you might want that to happen yeah. i you do have to think about how are people going to take this and certainly in comms um i'm doing a lot more work in sort of science comms and, and communication, realizing you can't control what people think or say about your stuff, but you can nudge them in the right direction. And you do that by providing clear information that helps people understand what does this show? What doesn't this show? How might this be applicable to me? Is this really not applicable to me? Um, you have got to think about it a bit more rather than just go, well, I made a thing, put it out into the world, make of it <laughs> what you will, yeah. because then people will, and then you can't really complain about it. Yeah, I see. I see. And I guess what happens in education a lot, and there's been a lot of debates on this about social media, is that people find a, f a favorite idea from research and, and uh, 
then they get upset when other when other people mutate that idea. They say, well, that that's not what it's about, you know. And it goes back to what you were saying there. Where you can't control how people interpret it and and put it into their own context. And that's that's complex, right? There's a complex relationship, especially in education, where you have very high stakes and an enormous number of um, variables. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, and these, a lot of these ideas are kind of sexy and they sound plausible. Like a lot of, I'm, I'm always amazed by particularly in sort of the psychology and behavioral sciences and like how plausible things sound. They yeah. seem true. A lot of stuff seems true. And then you go, well, has this been tested? And it's like, well, no, it hasn't, but it seems right. Sure. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I think is really important to point out that, you know, a lot of the ideas that come out of the research world, they, they do lose the kind of the caveats, the gray area. It becomes like, yes, no, this definitely not. Yes, black, white. Um, you know, this is the answer. This is what you do. And, and everyone will respond in this way. Mm. When of course, you know, intuitively, we know that that doesn't happen, but we want to believe it happens. And the other thing as well to highlight is that a lot of studies, they will tell you things on a population level. If things are based on like statistics and you go like, well, 78% of people like this. Yeah. That still means there's 22% of people who don't. And you, you know, and then it's, what does that mean on a personal level? The kind of the journey from population, personal, I think really gets missed because so much research is based on, because you want it to be statistically accurate. You, you've got to have large numbers. You've got to have the statistics. But then it's like, well, what does that mean for for me, for my child, for my classroom in my area, yeah. can you transfer this information from a classroom in Atlanta, Georgia to Burnley? Uh, well, maybe not. Yeah. And how, why, why, why do you think a lot of the mutations happen through simplification? So like, I mean, teachers don't have a lot of access to the original studies because a lot of them are paywalled, which is a separate issue. I mean, there's a, there's a big call out there for a lot more free science, but what tends to happen, and, and one of our columnists, Christian Bakov, talks about this, is that paragraphs or, or even chapters become sentences in the simplification process. And I guess part of your job is a simplification, is, is, is an accessibility is a better word, right? So how do you get accessibility without an oversimplification? Yeah, it's, that's something I struggle with every single day as a science communicator. It's like, how do you not... I hate the phrase dumbing down, mm. but it's like, how do you communicate an idea and the importance of an idea and the limitations of an idea without stripping it of nuance and detail to the point where it's just meaningless? You know, we sort of used to joke at Cancer Research UK that um, people just take so much detail out of something that it just become like, oh, this is a thing that sticks to a thing in cancer. And you're like, yeah. what? what does that even mean? Yeah. Um, so it is. I think as communicators, it's working out what are the actual important details here? What are the important caveats? I think, you know, scientists can, they can want to shove in loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of caveats. That's mm. how, that's how scientists roll. She says, generalizing. Yeah. Um, but you know, what are the actual important caveats, but what are the important details uh, to make something that's not completely generic, not uh, like, yes, do this black, white, um, so how do you think about how to communicate that message? But we live in a very increasingly short attention span era. We communicate in tweets and headlines. And yeah, it's, it, I don't have any really massively great answers for it because it is really, really hard. I think what complicates it sometimes is 
I've used this analogy in the last six months um, when we've been talking to a lot of scientists on the magazine around COVID and the risks around school is that you get a lot of scientists who you say, you know, can you fly? For example, if I jumped out a window, would I fly? And they'll, and they'll say, there's a not point, not, 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 not percent <laughs> chance that you might. And I mean, that's not a real example, but it gives you a, a sense of the sort of the hedging I'd call it that goes on. It's like, Oh, I, I don't want the headline being me saying you can't fly and then someone ends up flying the next day and I look like an idiot. And that cautiousness from academia, I can understand. But in your role and in my role as, as you know, I'm not a science communicator as such, but as a journalist, it can be incredibly frustrating to, and, and confusing for the public if, if things that have a very slim chance of happening are put in, in an equitable way with something that's likely to happen. Yeah, and there's this kind of two parts there. So the, the first part is in the scientists communicating to the journalists. Mm. And then the second one is like the mediation job that journalists then do. Um, the problem is there's kind of like, you know, falls at every step. Yeah. So I think one way that scientists certainly don't make life easy is trying to put in loads of numbers, loads of like, you know, well, yes, there is a P 0.05 statistical probability, whatever. It's like, that is not helpful to yeah. anyone, i.e., most people who don't have knowledge of statistics. And so when I'm doing science comms training with researchers, it's like, let's think of words that we can express that you're comfortable with that express these statistical concepts. You know, if it's 95%, just say most. Yeah. If it's 99%, that's nearly all. Uh, you know, if it's 0.1%, it's hardly any, virtually never. So it's like, how can you actually find a phrasing of words that, that the public gets and understands? Then the next step is like, as a journalist, you know, you should know enough about the story and know enough. Of, uh, I think all journalists should have a bit of statistics training, to yes, be honest. Definitely. I think uh, right. The Royal Statistical Society does offer that. Um, but like when a scientist is saying, well, it's a 0.001, so we could say virtually never. So yeah. it's like, all right, say virtually never. Then the journalist doesn't go, right, well, I'm going to say never. Yeah. You know, but don't, you know, don't make it too hedgy and put loads of numbers in it because no one, no one gets that. But so it's about finding forms of words that people understand effectively what they mean. Or like, practically speaking, this isn't something you need to worry about. You know, if you're doing this and if you're doing that, yes, you know, there's a chance that this might happen. But trying to find forms of words that aren't full of numbers and statistics, I think is really important. Do you think in the past six months where you have such a highly emotional topic as school reopening, school, schools closing, and there has been a struggle with the science, mostly because the government keeps talking about the science, which, as we've talked about previously, is a complete empty phrase, um, but also because, because there's been some hedging, because they won't say, you know, it, it got better when they would say when they started talking. I think it was some good work from one of the statisticians at one of the London universities was trying to discuss age group related statistics and then comparing those statistics because not everybody knows the flu death rate, for example. Not everyone knows, um, you know, the other instances that can happen to you. So there's no comparison there. Do you think because it's an emotive topic, perhaps the academia and perhaps the science has been a little bit more cautious than perhaps they would have been using those phrases perhaps slightly more reluctant because you know they're on the front page the next day you said children never 
get well hardly ever get it or wet, i've forgotten the exact phrase you used here's a, here's <laughs> a child never yeah virtually um, never so does yeah. emotion really cloud it yeah i think that, so the challenge is is certainly in in communicating anything like stories always trump statistics mm. so you know the story of here's the one child that did it's always going to trump like that that child is the 0.001% out of all the children that didn't yeah and that's always going to be a challenge um and so you sort of have to try and you know because no one wants to see a story about like here is 10,000 children who do not have this <laughs> like yeah. that's not a story so th- there is certainly a challenge there and I, I do want to pick up on what you said about kind of being led by the science and mm. I think there's this idea that like science can tell you e- even with the statistics like you know yes no here's like you've got a 90% chance of this 60% chance of this this is this is the science right and so you do this or you don't do that and like well actually if anything the pandemic should highlight that science i'm going to bang the drum for this so hard science is a process not a product Mm. the fact that one paper has come out that has some numbers in it that is not the last word on this and really explaining like okay so how did people get to those numbers what do they mean what does it involve why are those numbers different from some other numbers now and this is kind of complex stuff if you're just trying to look at the papers but it is the job that science communicators and scientists and journalists should be trying to engage with about you know what was the journey that got us here and then when new evidence comes out how does that fit in how does this build on this so you know there's you can argue for like greater public science literacy but i think journalists also do have some responsibility that you know, engaging with scientists engaging with science communicators to think about how do we actually explain this mm-hmm. in a way that that does get across that this is an ongoing process of emerging data in a disease that we didn't know anything about in January. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and there's... trying to make decisions about how to live our lives when there is, and that's the other thing, there is no right answer. And a scientific paper will not tell you a right answer about what you should do. And it won't tell the government what they should do. It won't tell you personally what you should do. It's kind of information that you have to integrate and, you know, and this is why it's such an impossibly hard job for the government, for schools, for policymakers, for parents, for teachers, because it's, this is the pure thing. You know, science gives us evidence. It doesn't tell us. Therefore, you must do this. Mm, I think there's a good examples of that in the COVID uh, pandemic for schools. There's a, there's a German study that was cited all over the place where one of the prominent German epidemiologists um, said that children had as high viral load when they had COVID as, as anyone else. And then that study was traded against another study, which, which contradicts it. And you had study versus study. And it was very hard to understand the consensus. And there were some very good as, um, people who were trying to give you the consensus. But all that was happening was, you're, look at this study, though. You're, you know, you're saying that, but this study says this. And that must be very confu- uh, sort of annoying, I guess is the word for an academic who's trying to consolidate, who's doing all the things right that we've talked about. Yeah, I mean, during the COVID pandemic, we're basically seeing like all the challenges in SciComm ramped up to 11. Yeah. So, you know, there's been long running bubbling conversations in the science communication world about what about these things called preprints, which are basically where scientists write a paper and they put it on the internet. And it's like, this hasn't been peer reviewed. It hasn't been checked. It hasn't been, it's kind of gone through the processes of 
quality control and rigor that scientific publications do before they end up in journals and usually mm. it's that process they they go through all that and then they get published and then we do all the publicity around them that's how they get to the public but now like preprints are just going up like this journalists are just reporting on them and you're like this is just a pdf basically <laughs> this is a pdf that someone has written and put on the internet yeah. it's not gospel and a lot of them are turning out uh, I think there's there's been a study I saw from some science writers, like a lot of them do turn out to be, this is pretty much how the published paper is once it's gone through peer review, which is not a perfect process, mm. I will say. Um, but some of them do turn out to be nonsense. And it's often those that get the most because they're controversial. Yeah. Um, so that's a big problem. And then the other problem that we're seeing is, and I experienced this a lot in the cancer field, is that, oh, scientists say this, but scientists say that. Don't scientists agree on anything? You don't know anything. You don't know what to do. Yeah. But well, yeah, because evidence from different studies can be contradictory all the way down. Yeah. Mm. So it's the job of scientists to then go, all right, well, what's the next experiment we need to do to try and figure this out? And like nothing is that absolute line in the sand of like, this is fact, an immutable fact right now. Yeah. And I think a good example of that was the face mask debate and, and, I know from, from my own sources that a lot of the confusion around face masks was around science around experiments with face masks and behavioral science. So what, not what does a face mask do in terms of COVID transition, but also what does a face mask do to someone's behavior? Do they maintain a social distance if they stick a mask on? And if they stick a mask on, what, what, is their, what is their process of risk assessment? And I guess that, that question has some multiple parts. But firstly, I mean, in your mind, behavioural science, I guess some people think, oh, that's not proper science, you know. You know what is this behavioural science? And, and, you know, versus some nice laboratory study that, with a mask, you know, they're not comparable. But what, what's your view on it? Are they comparable? Yeah, I think we, we really have to, with something like this, that is absolutely real world outcomes on the ground now, live, people's lives, we do have to think about how is this stuff manifesting in the real world? And that is the role of behavioral science to figure it out. Um, and so I think that, you know, there, there is a bit of a schism of the kind of led by the science, and like we should be led by the proper science, by the modeling and the, the lab yeah. studies and not by these you know, weirdo psychologists. Um, but like, we are humans, we are all humans and we behave like humans. And I think there was a study I saw from, I think it was a US university. They were trying to model what the potential infections could be like in their university when the students come back. And so they got the physics department to do it. And you sort of look at the model and it turns out the physicists just assumed that no parties would happen. Now, yeah. I don't know what that tells you about physicists. Yeah. Um, I, I sort of digest, but you have to really understand how this system is working. There's a very famous example in, in physics about how, uh, I think it's probably a joke rather than an example, where a farmer goes to the university and says, I want you to help improve the, the yield of my cows. I want you to help make my cows better and, and more milk and I'll, I'll make more money. And, um, and the physicists kind of start a paper by going, first assume an entirely spherical cow. Yeah. <laughs> like this, this, is not, this is not practical or applicable. And in this situation, we, we really have to have, like, we've just got to do our best. And I, I said, there's, there's no right answer here. I think we're going to get through this pandemic by just trying to make as many right decisions-ish, right-ish decisions in the right direction as we can um, as a population and as individuals. And that's very difficult because sometimes you don't know what the right decision is. Mm. And as a, as a teacher, well, as a teacher, 
assessing their individual risk and then as a head teacher assessing the risk to a school you know the time for a head teacher the the, the again the emotional side also you know they're also thinking about personal risk and then they're also thinking about well there's all this science what, what do i do like you know do i just follow the government guidelines to the dot and assume they've got it right or you know i've got parents throwing a study in my face saying you know this is why i'm not bringing my child back to school i mean there's no again there's no right answer to this but and is there any guidance you can give a head teacher in how they might best try and summarize that or, or get to grips with some of these questions or is it just best to just to follow the government advice and you know assume well, that the science has been done <laughs> i mean speaking as like i'm a woman just sitting in a bedroom in maidenhead yeah. with a degree and a phd in biology and not a public health expert yeah. i would never dream of saying do this don't do that yeah um it, it's very challenging because you know the government guidance they they do have I've used this phrase uh, carefully, they do really have experts working there. Um, the, this pandemic has flushed out an awful lot of armchair experts. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the government, they do, they, I think they have made missteps. I think they have made poor decisions. But you have to assume, at least at some point, that the heart is in the right place. Mm. And the guidelines that we have, uh, I'm not exactly even sure how they apply in schools because I'm not to the educational world anymore so I can't really talk to that but I think more generally um, we do have to try and integrate and balance everything together and it, it's sort of oh well there's these guidelines here and these guidelines. So I think one of the problems that we're all facing is that there's different guidelines for different parts of our lives mm. but we all live integrated lives you know you've got yeah. guidance about pubs and workplaces and guidance about schools and it's, it, this doesn't all sort of fit together so I think there is a challenge there of how society should be managing risk and I, I think that certainly like the government hasn't done a great job of accepting that we all live complex lives with multiple exposure potentially in it mm. so how do we balance that and how do we balance that as a society what risks are we accepting what risks are not worth it how do we balance exposures and the potential long-term impacts of impact on schools, impact on workplaces, impact of the economy, it's the world's most horrendous equation. Yeah. And there are no right answers to it. We've just got to try and try and figure our way through it. And you, um, sort of a final question is as a, as a teacher listening to this and, and you're trying to extrapolate, like you said before, population statistics down to what's my individual risk. You, you said in, in, in terms of cancer, in terms of the health sciences, that translation is, is, is probably not a simplistic one you can make and would you say the same is true of this that try not to you know because it's very anxiety inducing you know you've got 10 percent more chance of hospitalization with covid if you have i don't know diabetes i mean that to anyone listening that's a stat off the top of my head it's not a real stat but <laughs> but you the, the point is that you you translate that to your own experience and that's natural of course but it, you you mentioned earlier that it, it's not necessarily correct <laughs> Yeah, and that's, that's the thing, is there are population-level statistics and there are your personal, like, what happens to you? And you kind of only really see that. You're an N equals one study, and you'll only see that in retrospect mm. because, you know, you'll see what happened to you. So it's, I think we can use this kind of information to try and judge how risky we think things are, what kind of personal level of risk we're prepared to accept. And we do accept risk 
every single day in our lives. And that's the important thing. Like COVID is not just the only risk that we face. So, you know, every time if you're a smoker, every time you light a cigarette, you are accepting a certain level of risk. Every time you get in a car, you're accepting a certain level of risk. Every time you, I don't know how many of your listeners go skydiving or horse riding or Mm. riding on a bike, you are accepting a certain level of risk into your life. And quite often we don't even think about what those risks actually are. The thing with COVID is like, it's just slammed in your face every single day. Yeah. Risky, this bad, you know, risk, 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 risk. These numbers, that numbers, your risk. So we are having as a, as a population to grapple with risk and big stuff risk, like risk of mortality, risk of serious illness, risk of long-term illness in a way that we never really have before. Mm. And almost the immediacy is throwing everything we know around. So with something like cancer risk, you're like, well, you know, I'll, I'll have a cigarette now because I might not get cancer for like 35 years. And then you're like, well, if I go to the pub, will I get COVID by the weekend? Yeah. Like this is a much more immediate risk-based decision. And it's, it's, you know, it's very, very difficult and we are really being faced with it. And it's, I don't have any good answers because I think it's incredibly hard for everyone. No, I agree. And I think it's, um, it's something that we'll have to learn to live with that risk and, I think perhaps a better understanding of general risk is, is, is useful comparative risk. I mean, and what the pandemics highlighted for me is that our comparative risks, unless you've had direct experience of ill health or um, other situations, maybe a car crash, you know, you don't understand the levels of risk and how useful is it that you have scientists in the papers saying, well, you know, if you're in this age group, you've got more risk of dying in the bath than getting COVID. Is that, is, is that a helpful way of bringing in comparative contextual knowledge or not? Yeah, I think the side of it there is it's about, it's about helping you figure out what you want to do and also how much you want to worry about things. Mm. Because ultimately, like, risk is about worry. And there is absolutely huge anxiety at the moment about all of this kind of stuff. It's, it's the most anxiety-inducing thing that I think I've ever experienced in my life. Mm. Um, so, you know... trying to put things in proportion is really important and so I think the population statistics can try and help you shape your behavior so knowing that if you do this if you wear a mask if you wash your hands if you maintain social distancing you bring the chances of becoming infected or infecting others down 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 if you uh, choose to do if you are of this age if you have these underlying health conditions your risk is higher So maybe you want to try and do more of these behaviors that we know reduce your risk. Mm. Um, If your risk is much lower, then be proportional about how worried you should be. You know, so it's it's about not panicking when you don't need to be panicking and taking appropriate measures when they can actually do something for you to feel in control of your risk. So I, I think that's where those population level things can help. But ultimately, like each of us is a, is an N equals one, one off study. Um, and you sort of do have to choose your own adventure to a certain extent, but at least by saying, here's the comparative risks, here's how much difference we know these interventions make based on the available science that we have right now. Uh, so people can try and like, try and figure out how worried should they be? What do they think will really make a difference or, or help them to control their own risk? I think that's a, that's a very sensible message to, to end on and hopefully a very comforting message for, for, for the listeners out there. But before you go, you've, you've got a new book out and, and I'd be remiss of me not to talk about that a little bit because it is a fascinating, fascinating book. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? 
Yeah, so this book, um, it's called Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life. So I have brought a book out about cancer in the middle of a global pandemic. So great, great timing all round. And it's, um, it's a book, I mean, it sort of does explore what we really think cancer is. Where did it come from in our evolutionary history as a species, the history of life on Earth? Cancer is a very old, ancient disease. It's not just a human disease. It's not just a modern disease. So I've been trying to really put it in that context of the whole of biology, mm. um, understand where did it come from? How does it evolve? Why do some of the treatments we have work? Why some of them don't work so well? Why does it come back after therapy? And then looking to the future, how can we use more evolutionary-based ideas, ecology-based ideas to understand this cancer as, as a biological phenomenon and then find more effective ways to treat it in the future? Well, I'm going to put an order in right away, but um, I think um, it's, it's probably got some very good lessons that can come out for educators as well on, on science in general. And, and just, you know, it's, it's, it's something that goes along with your other book, which is um, Herding Hemingway's Cats, which is really, a, you know, an attempt to make very complex topics and highly emotional topics. Cancer and genetics are very complex and very emotional, more, more accessible. And I think that the more accessible something comes like, like COVID is, is, is it becomes it less anxious, anxiety inducing. Hopefully, hopefully it leaves you less anxious. Exactly. And there's, there's a quote, I think it got cut from the book in the end, but it's a, I think it's a sort of sub sub quote from Marie Curie who says, you know, nothing in life is to be feared is only to be understood. Mm. And I think that works across so many parts of life. And uh, you know, it's certainly applicable to cancer and I think it's applicable to COVID as well. Well, thank you very much, Kat, for joining me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you.